Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And I have plenty of wonderful merch in my store, and the link is in my show notes. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. Canada has had its fair share of shipwrecks. From the earliest ships to come to the area, there have always been the dangers of sinking. Some shipwrecks miraculously kill none. Others kill many. Some, like the Edmund Fitzgerald, become part of our collective cultural consciousness. Today I'm going to look at Canada's Titanic, the Empress of Ireland, Canada's worst maritime disaster. It was the largest peacetime maritime disaster in our nation's history, and it happened right along the St. Lawrence River near Rimouski, Quebec. Before we talk about the disaster, though, let's talk about the ship. The Empress of Ireland was an ocean-going passenger ship built by the Fairfield Shipbuilding and Engineering out of Scotland. Commissioned by the Canadian Pacific Steamships for the route between Liverpool and Quebec City, the Empress was the second of two twin ocean liners. The other was the Empress of Britain. The Empress of Ireland was built in 1904 and could travel at speeds of 33 kilometers per hour and had a passenger capacity of 1,500 people. The intended name for the ship was supposed to be the Empress of Austria, but it was changed to the Empress of Ireland after a policy was made that all Canadian Pacific ships would be named after a part of the British Empire. Stretching for 570 feet, she was ready for service and launched on January 26, 1906. Following the sinking of the Titanic, the Empress had her life-saving equipment updated. Originally equipped with wooden lifeboats in 1912, these were changed to steel lifeboats, 16 in all, along with 26 wooden lifeboats. In all, these boats could carry 1,686 people on them. By all accounts, most people considered it to be safer than the Titanic because of its updated life-saving equipment. In fact, it was said there were so many lifeboats on the ship that they were stacked on the deck. By the time 1914 came along, it had transported 117,000 new immigrants to Canada, 80,000 of which settled in the Canadian West. So let's flash forward to 1914 on the ship's 96th crossing of the ocean. It was on May 28th of that year at 4.30pm when the ship left Quebec City with 420 crew and 1,057 passengers. First class only had 87 booked passengers including Lawrence Irving, son of Sir Henry Irving and Sir Henry Seton Carr, a former member of the British House of Commons. Neither man would ever make it home to England. In second class there were 253 passengers, most of whom were with the Salvation Army for the Salvation Army Congress in London. In third class there were 717 people, nearly filled to capacity. The ship was captained by Henry George Kendall, who had just been promoted to captain and was making his first trip down the St. Lawrence River in command of the ship. On May 28th, ship left Quebec City bound for Liverpool. According to legend, the ship's cat, a yellow tabby, fled down the gangway just as the ship was leaving. 
A steward ran back to get the cat and brought the cat back, but the cat once again ran off the ship and was left behind. In the early hours of May 29th, the ship was traveling along the St. Lawrence River when it caught sights of the Storstad, a Norwegian ship. On the Storstad, there were 10,000 tons of coal being transported. A lookout said that they had seen a ship 13 kilometers up the river to starboard. Captain Kendall on the Empress ordered his crew to send their ship to the east, and at this point, the fog started to roll in. As soon as the fog rolled in, Kendall gave the order to go full astern and stop the ship. He then had two long blasts of the whistle to inform the Storstad that the Empress was not moving. The Storstad responded with one long blast. The crew of the Empress then looked for signs of the ship. Suddenly, the Storstead came out of the fog 30 meters away and the Kendall ordered the Empress to go full speed ahead to avoid the collision. At 2 a.m., the Storstad crashed into the Empress at a 45-degree angle right at the center of the ship. And while the Storstad remained afloat, the Empress was heavily damaged and a 300-foot square hole was ripped in her side, although some sources say it was 175 feet. Kendall ordered his crew not to reverse engines to keep the boat stable and the hole plugged in the ship. The Storstad captain ordered full ahead to keep his ship in the hole of the Empress, but the current of the St. Lawrence was too strong and the ships began to separate. The fog now began to clear and as the ships separated, water started to pour into the Empress at 60 gallons per second and the ship was sinking fast. Kendall sent out a message stating, Empress of Ireland stopped by dense fog, stuck amidship in vital spot. The Marconi station at Father Point kept in contact with the ship before it suddenly lost contact. There was no time to shut the watertight doors and many of the passenger and crew in the lower decks drowned. The ship began to list a starboard to the point that within a few minutes the boats on the port side could not be launched. And when passengers tried to launch the boats, the boats would crash into the side of the ship and spill everyone into the water. Only five lifeboats on the starboard section were actually launched successfully. Hundreds of sleeping passengers in second and third class were trapped with no hope of survival, while first class passengers were higher up in the boat and could get to the deck much quicker. Ten minutes after the collision, the ship lurched, allowing some people to get out the portholes and decks onto the port side. For the next minute, the ship was on its side, but two minutes later after that, the stern rose out of the water and the ship began to sink below the waves. Several hundred people were thrown into the extremely cold water and died as the cold overtook them. The Storstad did what it could, lowering her own lifeboats and bringing survivors out of the water. The radio operator on shore quickly picked up the emergency signal and broadcasted out to two other ships that arrived at 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. The huge loss of life was attributed to three factors. The first was where the Storstad hit the Empress, the second was a failure to close the watertight doors, and the bulkheads that increased the list by inhibiting cross-flooding. Another problem was the open portholes. Typically portholes were closed as soon as the ship left port, but they were left open this time for the ventilation and the feeling that they were in the sheltered waters of the St. Lawrence River. When the ship began to list a starboard, the open portholes increased the flooding of the ship. In all, the ship sank in only 14 minutes. Only 7 of the 40 lifeboats were launched. Of the 420 crew, 172 died, or 28.4%. Of the passengers, 840 died, including over 134 children. Of the 310 women on board, only 41 lived, while 172 men out of the 437 lived. Third class was the hardest hit, with 584 lives lost of the 717 people who were in that class. Second class lost 205 people out of 253. 
In second class, there were those 170 members of the Salvation Army, of which only 40 survived. In the first class, 51 people died out of 87. The first ship, other than the Storstad on the scene, was a CGS Eureka, followed by the Lady Evelyn. A message came from one of the ships in the search area as morning broke, stating, No sign of Ireland. Lifeboats visible in the distance, circling around the CGS Eureka. The government steamer Lady Evelyn is also on the scene now. One of the survivors was Captain Kendall, who had ordered lifeboats to be launched immediately. When the ship lurched over to its side, he was thrown into the water and had to swim to the surface where he clung to a wooden grate. As soon as he got into a small boat, he took command of it and ordered the crew to drop off the survivors and then find more survivors. He spent the next two hours searching the water for people. And now, let's look at a few of the people who were on that ship when the disaster happened. The youngest survivor on the ship was Grace Hannigan, who was also the last survivor of the sinking when she passed away in 1995. She said that her parents, who were with the Salvation Army, were awoken 10 minutes before the ship went under the water and jumped over the side. While Grace was lifted into a lifeboat, her parents died. For years, she was scared to take a bath, having been one of only four children to survive the wreck. She said, I remember holding onto a plank or some wood, and there was a woman on it with me. We saw a lifeboat a little ways off, and we called to the people in the boat. I thought that I was with my mother and father, the three of us, I th thought, landed in the water together. And it seemed like I was sort of, my father was floating and I was on top of him. And then I was there on this wreckage alone. And I could see a couple of lifeboats. And I remember calling help. And one came over. <laughs> and I got in. <laughs> Another survivor, William Clark, who worked as a stoker on the ship, said, No one had any time to wait on the Empress of Ireland. We knew what we had to do. No more, no less. The Empress sprawled like a pig in the mud. The Titanic simply sank like a fat baby going to sleep. William Clark had also survived the Titanic two years earlier, where he served as a fireman on board the ship. When he sailed on the Empress, he was also a fireman, and again, amazingly survived that sinking as well. Tragedy hit many families, including the Barchi family out of both Alberta. Their brothers Chris and Ted were on their way to Switzerland when the ship sank. Both men were awakened by the crash and ran to the deck to put on their life jackets. They said goodbye to each other and jumped overboard into the water. The ship sank and pulled both men down in the suction. Ted came to the surface and looked for his brother but did not see him. Sadly, Chris had cut his hand on wire before the trip and was unable to hang on to anything in the water. He was lost at sea while Ted made it to a lifeboat and was one of the survivors. Thomas Corgan was on the ship and he dived into the water to save a young man who was his neighbour from Liverpool. Lawrence Irving, that person I mentioned earlier, a famous theatre actor in England was on the ship when it went down. He and his wife Mabel had become separated on the ship and he knew she could not swim, although he put a life belt around her. Even though she was safe, he jumped into the St. Lawrence to rescue her. Neither of their bodies were ever found. Charlie Wilkies of Fairlight, Saskatchewan was on the ship as part of the Moose Jaw Salvation Army band en route to London when he went down with the ship. The Nelson family out of Provost, Alberta had made the decision to take a trip out to the old country in 1914. The family had arrived in 1907 and felt it was time for a visit. John Nelson and his wife, along with their sons Eric and Siegfried, were on the ship when the disaster happened and the entire family would drown in the disaster. A man identified as W. Davis of Montreal said he and his wife had been awakened by the collision and knew nothing of the accident until water began to rush into their stateroom. 
He helped his wife onto the deck, but the ship listed by that point. They then crawled on their hands and knees up the sloping deck as the ship sank. His wife was then swept out of his grasp as the ship sank. They were both sucked under the water by the ship going beneath the waves, but they emerged and grabbed onto a piece of wood and were rescued. J.W. Longley, a rancher from B.C., simply sat on the deck rail as the ship went down. He held his breath and as he came back up, he grabbed the side of a lifeboat and was rescued. William Measures, a Salvation Army bandsman, crept along the rail of the promenade deck as the ship sank before he jumped into the water. He then swam to a lifeboat and was rescued. A Mrs. Hollis, one of the eleven stewardesses on the ship, was the only one to survive. She said, I cannot swim, but I managed to keep afloat for a few minutes until a fireman pulled me out of the water. Fergus Duncan, who was on the ship, gave a detailed account of what happened. He said, The impact did not seem serious to Captain Kendall or the commander of the Storstad, but it was sufficient to leave quite a space between them. The Empress launched a boat to see what the damage was, and almost at the same moment the Empress listed to one side. Before there was any warning for the passengers to go on the deck, the ship lurched again and went down. The ship's doctor, James Grant, survived the sinking and tended to the injuries of the survivors wearing a pajama top and borrowed trousers. For the rest of his life, he never discussed his time on the ship. Many who were not on the ship suffered tragedy as well, including one man who had bid his wife and young daughter goodbye as they left to go to Liverpool. He said upon learning of their deaths, I would sooner have gone down on that boat with my wife and child than have heard this terrible news. For the last two weeks, my little daughter believed that something would happen. On the way to the train, she said to me, Oh, Daddy, I'm afraid of that boat. Several days after the ship sank, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle arrived from Montreal and he was asked how to solve the mystery of the sinking. He said he could offer no solution, but it was clear what happened. Prime Minister Robert Borden said of the disaster, In its awful suddenness and in the dreadful toll of human life taken the disaster is one which brings a shock as we in this country have never felt before. Captain Kendall was apparently beyond consoling and was said to be laying in a hotel and not uttering more than two words in the days after the disaster. A few weeks after the disaster, Canadian Pacific hired a salvage company to dive down and blast a hole in the ship to get the mail from the first class area, along with money worth $2 million today. A British court of inquiry blamed the captain of the Storstad, while a Norwegian inquiry blamed the captain of the Empress. Both captains said the other ship changed course and hit their ship. The Canadian Parliament passed a bill to appoint a special board of inquiry, but the testimony of the witnesses and survivors was so confusing and contradictory that the board made its own estimate of the fact. Lord Mercy, who sat on the board, said, The stories are irreconcilable, and we have determined which is more probable. The times, distances, and bearings vary so very much, even the evidence from witnesses from the same ship. Like the British court, the Canadian court too blamed the Storstad for colliding with the ship. And despite the huge loss of life, the Empress was far less famous in the public mind than the Titanic. For decades, the Titanic was more written about and covered. Only the Salvation Army wrote anything about the Empress when Herbert Wood wrote Till We Meet Again in 1982. Three other books were written as well, and historians believe the ship was overtaken in the public mind because of the outbreak of the First World War. It was not until the movie Titanic was released in 1998 that people became more interested in the story of the Empress. It was in that year that the Quebec government finally declared the sunken liner to be a historic site to prevent looters and salvagers from stripping the ship. The wreck site remains undisturbed until 1964 when it was found by a scuba diving team from Ottawa and Hull. They soon removed artifacts. In 1968, one of the 20-ton propellers was removed. 
Then divers from the United States began to take artifacts from the wrecked site too, illegally, back to the United States. Today, the Empress sits 130 feet below the surface and is accessible to divers. One diver was able to reach the mailroom where he found a bundle of newspapers, neatly tied with paper, that was still readable and dated May 27, 1914. In April 2012, 500 artifacts from the Empress of Ireland were acquired by the Museum of Civilization. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the Empress of Ireland. Information for this article comes from the Canadian Cyclopedia, Canada's History, Across Border and Valley, Botha, Liverpool Museums, Wikipedia, Early Furrows, Irish Central, Ottawa Citizen, Calgary Herald, Montreal Gazette, National Post, Saskatoon Daily Star, Daily News Advertiser, and the Vancouver Province. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many you can sink your teeth into. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those links in the show notes.